Survival stories can be both thrilling and terrifying, and if told well, can keep us on the edge of our seats. Today, we have the story of the survival of 38 men, women, and children who, against all odds, survived the Holocaust by living in a vast cave system for over a year and a half. Today, their story of the triumph of the human spirit. Expanding World in association with the Explorers Club are proud sponsors of this episode of Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher, and the Global Exploration Summit, a pioneering endeavor bringing together the world's leading explorers, sharing cutting-edge technology, and innovations to propel us toward the next frontier in the future of exploration and to make a difference in the future of humanity. Visit GlexSummit.com to learn more about the Global Exploration Summit and the impactful men and women who are the heart and soul of scientific innovation and exploration. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club, just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. In 1993, while exploring caves in the Ukraine, American caver Chris Nicola discovered a hidden history and the amazing story of 38 Ukrainian Jews who beat the odds and survived over a year and a half deep underground. Joining us from Queens, New York, is Chris Nicola. Chris, welcome to Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher. Uh, hello, Richard, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, good seeing you. know, Chris, it, it's interesting. When I was, um, you and I know each other for quite a few years, but when I was actually going over your bio, I found a lot of stuff I didn't know. I didn't know that you were born in England, that you were a union organizer, a police officer, you were a, a bar manager and bouncer. You've done FBI training. And then on top of that, 
you know, you've you've had some things happen to you that, you know, any one of these would put us in the grave. You've had a heart attack. You've had cave diving accidents, poison gas accident, avalanche, gas explosion, and then you've had vicarious trauma. I'm, I'm glad you're able to sort of look at me. Well, you know, uh, there's a fine difference between uh, being an expert and a fool. A fool constantly makes mistakes. Some will say the expert does it once and learns a lesson, never does it again. I'm glad to say I've never had another heart attack. I'm glad to say I've never had a second gas explosion or other things like that. <laughs> this this reads kind of out of uh, a spy novel because usually you see these James Bond or Born Identity movies and, you know, they always talk about these fantastic obstacles people uh, ran into. Where did you grow up? I know you were born in England, but you're you're a New York guy, right? Uh, yes, but uh, my parents immigrated to Western Massachusetts from London when I was about one year, one year of age. And I grew up in northwest Massachusetts near the uh, the lovely town of Williamstown, home of Williams College until age six. And then the great outdoors was taken away from me, and I was brought by my parents into New York City. And uh, until I started traveling uh, my later teenage and early college years, I was basically uh, in New York growing up. So so when did you uh, start the caving bug? Ah, well, you know, I've been doing a lot of reflecting uh, over the past year, having a lot of time on my hands and not being able to travel like I used to because of the COVID era. And I realized that when I was in Massachusetts from the ages of one or two to about five, I loved the great outdoors. Uh, I had a a relative that immigrated to New York State in the early 30s from the island of Cyprus when my dad grew up. So when my mother and father moved to uh, Western Massachusetts, they both worked for my Uncle Mike that owned a combination catering restaurant hall and uh, motel. And we lived in a cabin on the motel grounds. I had a lake, I had hills, I had deers in the morning to look at. Uh, when my first got there, my mother kept putting out larger and larger bowls of milk every succeeding morning, telling my father, you won't believe the size of the cats here. And then a week later, a ranger or boy scout uh, leader knocked on the door, explained they were looking for a bobcat that was attacking people. <laughs> and my mother said they do grow everything big here. But anyway, I loved that. And it was down at the bottom of the stream. I think it went under Route 2 or Route 5, a little two-lane road that went up the mountain and crossed into New York. Uh, there was a conduit about eight feet wide, maybe only about 15 feet long. You never lost the sunlight, but I was six years old. There were cobblestones in the stream, and that was my first cave. Even though it was in the middle of the day, I used a little flashlight, and I would step on the cobbles not to get my. And I realized that was my first cave. And then when we moved to New York, uh, I realized now I felt like something was taken away from me. But then what I used to do is I used to take a blanket, put it over the dining room table, turn out all the lights, take my red. Uh, lens Boy Scout camp light and go under into my makeshift cave and live there as much as I could with my make-believe friends, especially after reading the book 
Tom Sawyer and the story about running away from Injun Joe. You know, it's it's funny because, first of all, I don't imagine six-year-old kids going under any kind of caves these days, right? Or, or walking in the woods without being surrounded by, you know, safety nets and, 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 and cushions. But I do think that cavers are a different breed. I, I've done a little spelunking, as you guys call it. And that idea of wedging yourself in something so tight that if you breathe, you sort of feel like you're stuck. I, I mean, did you ever have that fear? Well, well, Richard, uh, you're a scuba diver. Yeah, I've done cenote uh, diving. Yeah, you, you remember the first time you put all that equipment on you, how confining it felt? But as you dove more and more, it started to feel like a glove. Guess what? As I started to cave more and more, eventually the rock around me felt like a glove. It was a natural fit. And there are some caves that I've been taking people into for years uh, that were that require crawling on the floor. I have muscle memory of those particular caves. There are some sections I can move through there faster with the lights completely out than with the lights on. Because it does fit me like a glove. And you really get a feel for it. You know, I remember when I was doing um, cenote diving, and cenote diving, for people who don't know, Uh, There are limestone caves underwater in Mexico and Florida. I happen to be in Mexico. And you go through these cave systems that have obviously no lights. But the thing that uh, I had to divorce my mind from was there is no up. And psychologically, when you think I just can't pop up because there is no up, you really have to put yourself in a different mindset. I mean, you get used to it and there's obviously safety issues uh, issues that come up. And, you know, I always went with people who are better than me. And that's, that's always been sort of my rule of thumb on doing activities that I'm not comfortable with. Well, you're correct with uh, cave diving, uh, which is really uh, when I start to be introduced to the world of caving, most people do it oppositely. They get involved in going what we call dry caving, find water that obstructs their passage, they learn how to dive, and then they start cave diving, and they continue doing that until usually by reason of age, they make one mistake, and they become a statistic. I did it in reverse, and I tell people that's why I'm here today. I, I got that out of me in my younger years. But you're right, with uh, cave diving, it's not the depth so much. It's the penetration. Uh, and even while diving underwater, there were times, um, oh, 20, 30 years ago, where my colleagues and I would go upstate New York every single weekend to go looking for new caves. But guess what? You might only be 20 or 30 feet, even 10 feet under. And we would be moving rocks around and uh, not sure of the, the ceiling or how strong it was, always being careful, but always knowing you could be going in there for five or 10 minutes. If that ceiling collapses behind you, you might as well be on the surface of the moon in terms of rescue. Unbelievable. All right, let's, let's take you to 1993 and the Ukraine. Um, I I know again, from knowing some cavers um, that you have a group of people and and a good way of visiting people and doing common activities is going caving. What took you to the Ukraine in 1993? Um, several things. Um, First, I had a heart attack earlier that year. 
um, I was, um, I had moved back up from uh, Washington, D.C. And after 17 year absence uh, in Washington, I was a police officer and union organizer. But after a 17 year absence, uh, I came back to New York and went back to college. And I was, I went, uh, I earned several undergraduate degrees and a master's degree. It was in a doctoral program. I was under a lot of stress having five part-time jobs as a 40 plus year old getting involved in a doctoral uh, uh, degree program. And I started a triathlon club at John Jay College of Criminal Justice to cut down the stress. And uh, one week, uh, the same week I did a marathon, I did 18 mile training run, did a biathlon, and I had a cold. And at the end of the week, I actually did a triathlon. I didn't feel right um, after the triathlon. And I was disappointed with my results. And I asked a, a, a fellow competitor who happened to be a doctor that was sitting next to me afterwards uh, if, there was, if he could take my pulse. And he said, don't move. Turned out I was having a heart attack. Oh my God. I had to be rushed to a hospital. Um, and and um, I thought my life was over. It turned out the medicine in the, in the cold um, uh, decongestion I was taking acted as a vasoconstrictor uh, blocking the arteries. So basically, for about a week while in the hospital, I thought my life was over. And um, so I want to get back to the life of adventure. And it just so happens, uh, not only did I do the New York Marathon again six months later with a, a wrist heart monitor <laughs> that my doctor was monitoring, uh, but I, I also um, happened to run into a, a visiting Ukrainian caver in all places, Coney Island, New York, which many American uh, and uh, Russian American, yeah, uh, call Little Odessa. And his name was Valeria Koshnikov. He became one of my best friends. I'm proud to say today, him and his family live in Florida. I'm the godfather of his grandson and his daughter. Uh, but anyway, when he went back that summer, he said, You should come visit me and my family in Ukraine, and I'll take you to visit the giant gypsum caves that you've been reading about in your geology books. So at that point, Valeri had not met many New Yorkers, so he didn't quite know what it was like to invite a New Yorker for free room <laughs> and board. So I've been going back every year for 26 years. But apart from that, I walked into a, a pre-Scrado cave in western Ukraine, again, there to study the topography and the geology and the passages of this immense cave and um, nothing uh, known about some type of story about human beings in that cave and about an hour in the cave I start to find uh, artifacts uh, I found a lady's shoe I found rusted eating utensils and I could I immediately knew that these things were aged but not on the order of several years nor in the order of of centuries, but of decades. Now, I start to ask questions of my, my fellow cavers. Now, picture this. It's 1993. Communism just collapsed several years earlier. I'm the new guy in the block, and not knowing and having read beforehand about the history of the area I was visiting, now I do that. I start to ask questions about the Second World War and what happened there. Uh, the only lead I had was I happened to run into a 80 plus year old lady on the surface. 
uh, dressed all in black. And for an interpreter and translator, I asked her, did she know anything about how these artifacts got in the cave? And she looked around and whispered, I think there were Jews in there during the war. Well, no one else would talk to me about because I'm the new guy in the block. I did something very odd to the people there, people that grew up under totalitarian rule for 70 years, and they still talk about today. Not only was I asking questions about things they didn't want to discuss, because sadly, some Ukrainians side with the Nazis, welcoming them as liberators when they came into the, the country. But so I'm the new guy in the block, and I did something strange. I smiled at them too, and they couldn't get over that. So it took me a couple of years to win the confidence. But I wasn't getting information from them. But what I would do is every year when I go back, I give them a things to do list. I want them to find elderly people, ask them if they knew anything about this rumor I picked up. Nothing was happening. And while in the U.S., I would constantly spend my time at libraries, bookstores, archives, looking in the back of book, books, looking in the back of books, hopeful to see these magic words like, Jewish cave survivor, Holocaust cave dweller, but nothing. And I spent a good nine to 10 years trying to search for evidence of this rumor that people lived in a cave and may have survived was true, and nothing, nada. And then around 2002, when I was getting ready to dump the whole project, I think it was nothing but unbelievable rumor. I came across a, a very sophisticated Jewish genealogical website. And I realized every day thousands of Jews were going to that site to get records from this area known as Galicia in Western Ukraine, uh, birth records, death records, wedding records. And I thought to myself, if this rumor, i.e. that some people may have survived the Holocaust by living in a cave is true, perhaps one day there'd be relatives doing genealogical research on the web. And if I picked the right keywords and embedded them in my website about Ukrainian caves, perhaps one day one of these relatives will find a way to me. And sure enough, on December 7, 2002, I received an email from a fellow who identified himself as Ed Vogel, the son-in-law of Saul Wexler, who survived the Holocaust with 37 friends and relatives by living underground in a cave in Western Ukraine for 500 days. And Saul was living just seven miles away from me. Unbelievable. Oh, that is like an unbelievable moment. I mean, do you think part of your background as, as a cop, as, as a law enforcement person, sort of led you to ask the right kind of questions? I mean, luck plays a bit of a role in here, but it sounds like you were doing an investigation. No doubt in my mind. In fact, um, the producer of the documentary, uh, No Place on Earth, um, her name is Jan Tobias, she once said that she thinks I look at caves as underground Rubik's cubes. I do. It's a mystery. That's what always fascinated me to the caves. Um, I should mention that one of the questions I commonly get asked is, why do we go caving? People like me go caving. Well, you know... Well, I'm about to tell you that as, I, as I'm speaking to you now, 12 people have walked on the surface of the moon. I have been blessed and lucky enough to have met five to six of them 
at the Explorers Club during my life. Uh, 2,400 people have summit Mount Everest. A handful have been to the deepest oceanic trenches in the world. But when you cave, to this day, there's still a chance of being the first at seeing something nobody else has ever seen. And you get that adrenaline rush, and it becomes addictive. You might go in a cave that's been known for several hundred years and make a left-hand turn instead of a right-hand turn. And in so doing, see something no one else has seen. You may be the first one in that cave to lift the rock out away instead of climbing over it and find a whole new life form underneath it or a life form long thought to be extinct. And then when you move a rock, if you see another rock, the journey's over. But when you move a rock and you see nothing but a dark void, the journey's only begun. In short, what we cavers do is we look for the darkness beyond the void. In a manner of speaking, we look for nothingness. And that's an addictive feeling. And when you do see that thing that no one else has ever seen, I have to admit, it's a type of selfish feeling because for that split second, you own the universe. It's yours. But Chris, in, in, in this story, something so fantastic as a group of people hiding underground for well over a year and no one knowing that story, I find that almost as fantastic. You know, uh, well, you do know I'm a caver. I've been caving since the mid-70s. I've given presentations about the pre Grotto story for many years now. Probably have done over 200 of them. And I have to admit, every time I give the presentation, I, being a caver, am left somewhat bewildered. And I always end up time and time again with several tears in my eyes after telling this story, knowing right. it's coming. All right, back to the story. This is good. I'm on the edge of my seat. Oh, so uh, Fusal Wexler, uh, I, I met him. I, uh, we sat down. Uh, he was a, a great host. <laughs> and um, he started telling me, the story of him, his relatives, and some of the friends from the village uh, in Western Ukraine and what they went through in the Second World War. But he surprised me by giving me a copy of his aunt's manuscript. Uh, Esther Sturmer had written her story down in the early 60s. And I looked through this manuscript. It was filled with information, not only giving the names of the 38 people that lived in Priest Grotto Cave for 344 days, but also the names of the 28 who lived in a second cave prior to moving into Priest Grotto Cave, a second cave named Fataba um, uh, Cave for 180 days. So now I had knowledge and the listing of the names of the people that lived in two caves. And with that, I had to decide what to do with this story, which I realized immediately had time constraints on it. Because at that time, because of the ages, there were only 15 original 38 people still alive that lived in the cave. That's still a high. I mean, it's almost half. Yes. And, uh, and originally, I thought not having any experience with film studies, subsequently, I did get a degree in film studies. Um, I, I looked at my limitations. 
and I realized the time constraints here. And in hindsight, my biggest contribution to helping produce the documentary No Place on Earth, which was a film about how I took four survivors back to the cave many years later, my greatest contribution was to recognize my limits, step aside, and reach out to a friend named Peter Lane Taylor, a photojournalist that had a track record working with uh, different adventure organizations and Hollywood. And we teamed up and our original pursuit was going to be to make a documentary. I mean, I've seen the film. It's fantastic. But what, you know, I think you're leaving out now is that after um, looking at that Sturmer uh, manuscript, you started contacting survivors and really as, as a detective putting these pieces together. Well, that, that, that was interesting. So uh, Peter and I had to have a strategy uh, meeting uh, after I uh, contacted uh, Saul Wexler as to, you know, how we're going to approach this. Uh, there was one other ripple along the way. Saul Wexler, at the end of our first meeting, he said, uh, you know, Chris, I'll, I'll work with you. And I had not told him about wanting to make a documentary or doing a book. I didn't want to scare him away. So maybe I'll do a newsletter article for my caving club. He said, well, I'll work with you, but you have to understand, I can't do a thing unless you get the blessings from the patriarch of our family, my uncle, uh, Saul Sturman up in Montreal. And he said, I'll give you his number, wait a week, and then give him a call. So I did. I waited a week. I called up Saul Sturman. He's very friendly on the phone. He said, oh, so you're that crazy guy that went into my cave. You know, he said, you know, he said, in my case, my, my family and I had to go in the cave. You know, to stay alive. But why would sane individuals like you and your friends voluntarily go into these caves? But I said, who said cavers are sane? Who said cavers are sane? So he said, <laughs> okay, yeah. So we talked and talked, and he was very proud about uh, some of the things he and his family did in the cave, as he should be, should have been. And uh, I said to uh, Mr. Sturm, I understand you're going to be down in uh, Florida next week, actually next month. I'm going to be there too. Do you think we can get together for lunch? I said, yes, give me a call when you get there. A month later, I was down in West Palm Beach. I gave him a call. We were making arrangements over the phone to go to lunch. And uh, he said, okay, I'll meet you in a couple of hours. But Mr. Nicola, I must ask, what will we talk about? And then I said the D word, documentary. Uh-oh. I said, well, a friend of mine and I would like to explore the opportunity and, uh, and possibility of making a documentary about what you and your family went through during the Second World War in that cave in Western Ukraine. And Saul turned to me 180 degrees. He became hostile, aggressive. Really? He said, who are, you? who are you people? You've got no business in our affairs. And he was getting ready to slam the phone down on me. So I politely apologize and diplomatically ended the conversation and then he slammed the phone down wow why um, well then i i I, call, I tried to call saul wexler and surprisingly his number had been disconnected what? Uh, his apartment vacated and he turned up several months later in a nursing home that's another long story but then i called up uh, peter taylor and i said peter i think we got a problem and the, and the question is how do you make a documentary about people that want nothing to do with you? <laughs> so we had a strategizing uh, session. And um, I said, Peter, being a police officer, 
Uh, I've done a background check on everybody involved here, and the Sturmers and others. I want to know who I'm dealing with. I said they are successful, self-made millionaires in the construction industry. These are people that are used in the privacy of their own homes and own businesses, making their own decisions. Here we are. We're not part of the family. We're not the same religion. We're not the same culture. Uh, we're not the same age. So Peter goes, what, what should we do? I said, what about if we draft a letter and we send it to them? And in their own privacy, their own homes, they can look at it together. And in that letter, we mention who we are. We, we tell them we have a track record of doing things like making documentaries about these type of events around the world. Um, we explain that I know the K, but anybody else outside the former Soviet Union. And we politely put it out front that we're going to make a documentary about this story with them or out them, but we will certainly welcome their involvement to make sure we get their family story straight. So Peter said, okay, let me know when you got the letter done. Three days go by. I finished the letter. I called Peter up. I said, I got good news and bad news. So what is it? Good news is I got the letter done. The bad news, it's four and a half pages long. He goes, now what? I said, okay, what about this? I take the high points of the letter, condense it into a one-page cover letter, and with the letter, I send them a courtesy copy of my Cave Club's newsletter, in which there will be selectively placed articles explaining who we are, we got a track record, we're going to make a documentary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, it sounds good. How soon can you get that done? I said, I don't know, because our Cave Club's never had a newsletter, so first I got to make a newsletter. <laughs> so I made a 30-page newsletter oh from my page gosh. 198 to uh, uh, 208, uh, 218, volume 24, year 17. And I sent it out and we waited and waited and waited. And then for two weeks, nothing. So Peter and I figured it's all over. Then one night I came into my apartment. I just came back from a, a long, tiring expedition to Brazil. I was unpacking and I had one of those old fashioned uh, tape um, answering machines. And the light was flashing and I clicked it and I heard to this day one of the beautifulest voices I've ever heard. And it was, I think that time it was 86-year-old uh, Sal Sturmer from Montreal saying, hello, hello, Miss Nicola, my family and I want to meet you guys. Wow. And we, were, and we were in. Wow. That's incredible. And then, you know, you started putting pieces together and I know you've lectured yeah. on this, you know, umpteen times and uh you had a quote about the holocaust that i always thought was very uh interesting you say like the holocaust it's a number it's six million people and whether it's six or seven million it's a number but yeah. in your case it became personal well uh yes uh one of the most frequently asked questions at the presentations the conclusion of the presentations i do is what has this all meant to me a gentile and I tell people that when I was growing up, uh, I heard about the atrocities committed against Native Americans. I heard about the evils of American slavery. And I heard about the number, six million, the estimated number of Jews to have perished in the death camps of the Nazis. Um, but I have to admit, back then, whether it was five million, six million, seven million, it was just a number. Now, I hate to quote someone like Joseph Stalin the leader of the Soviets uh, during the Second World War. But he once said something like, 
the loss of an individual is always a personal tragedy. Thank goodness the loss of millions is nothing but a mere statistic. I can tell you that after spending, in some cases, over 10 years doing numerous interviews of many of the survivors that we're talking about here today, looking in their eyes, letting them draw me in the world, just to give me a glimpse of the horrific things they went through, all the time knowing that the one thing I can never say as a non-Jew is, I get it, I understand. I finally got it. And what I got was the Holocaust was never one individual story of how six million people perished. It was six million individual stories of the loss of fathers, sons, brothers, lovers, schoolmates, and grandparents, as are all such genocides. At that point, that number, six million, took on a completely new meaning in my life. And to this day, is still overwhelming to me. And in the process, I got a family. Um, they took me in, in a manner of speaking. Um, there came a point after having known them for almost a decade uh, during the uh, development of book and the movie that my mom got terminally ill down here in New York. This goes back about eight years ago. And Knowing what the Sturmers and others had gone through, I was always hesitant to let them have other troubles in their mind. So I never said a thing to them. And I remember I was uh, near my mother's bedside and um, in the end, while she was in hospice, and I got a phone call and it was uh, old Sal Sturmer from Montreal. And he said, uh, I hear... I've heard what's going on with your mother. Look, it took you 20 years to find your Jewish family. Well, we should be involved. So in the process, I also got a family. I mean, who, who, who would have ever guessed? I mean, you're talking about people who survived 511 days, age two to, I think, 70 in conditions that were not optimum, these were not cavers by by nature, and despite them going through such um, such personal uh, sacrifice, it, it, I guess it just shows the capacity of the human heart and empathy, right? Uh, actually, that leads right to the dedication Peter Taylor and I gave in a book. Uh, we dedicated the book to the human spirit its strength, and its endurance. And uh, I, sh I should mention that in um, 2003, after Peter Taylor and I returned from a National Geographic uh, photo shoot, we decided to um, give a slideshow to the Sturmer family up in Montreal. And uh, during the week that Peter and I spent over the internet, back and forth putting together the slideshow, there came a point where we realized that this was going to have a, a strong emotional impact on the survivors up in Montreal. And we became worried about how they would take it. So I sent out an email to um, Oscar Sturmer. He was the, the son of one of the three Sturmer brothers of Nissel. Unfortunately, Nissel had passed away the year before. I never got to meet him. And I expressed our concern about how this would affect his uncle and his other relatives. 
and he wrote back a, an email, which I think is, I think we quoted in the book, The Secret of Peace Grotto, and said, Chris, keep two things in mind. They had 60 plus years to prepare for this. And this is a story of survival, not defeat. That's the difference. And, That's and, the difference. and in your conversations with many of the survivors who've become friends, have you ever sort of thought to yourself, what was it? What made the difference of this being uh, a triumphant story versus a tragedy? What was it within them that allowed them, all of them survive for 511 days in a dark, damp cave? Very good question. And one of the first questions when the time was uh, best to ask them that I always asked them, um, given the odds that were against you, uh, how do you explain that you made it? You beat the odds. Now, keep in mind, in the uh, in 2002, 2003, only 15 of the original 38 uh, alive. But I had the opportunity to ask each of them, except one, that same question. And um, some said it was fate. It was uh, somebody up there looking over them. It was luck. Some said it was the strong constitution of, of Esther Sturmer, who raised the kids to never blindly accept the word of authorities and to never hesitate asking questions. Some said it was the military training of our oldest son, Nissel, uh, also known as Nathan Sturmer, who served four years in the Polish cavalry. But the number one common answer that they all gave is they said when they looked around, they saw the mother, the brother, the sister, their family, they had no choice. They had to stick it out together. It was the family bond, the love that they all had for one another. No question in my mind. That's what got them through it. Chris, this is an unbelievable story. And it, and I'm sure as many times have you've told this story, you've had people and audiences wanted to have hugged you, touched you, be part of that. Um, this story not only changed their life, but I mean, it, it, it's changed the course of your life. Uh, yes. Um, and I have to admit at first, I, I think I could speak for Peter also, Peter Lane Taylor, the co-author of my book. We had no idea of how strong the impact would be, not only on the original survivors, but the children and grandchildren. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Peter and I did a slideshow up in Montreal after we came back uh, from the uh, 2003 in that geo photo shoot in Western Ukraine. And this was a real slideshow with carousels. This wasn't that digital stuff. Uh, had two 50 slide carousels. Uh, there were about 30 stormers in the room up in Montreal. Three generations, the survivors, children, grandchildren. I'm Peter and I, the only non-Jews in the room, and I'm showing the slides. And nothing but kibitzing. Kibitzing, you know, uh, Saul Sturmer said, there's my millstone. Look, it's still there. That's 100 pounds. It wasn't going anywhere, you know, things like that. And then we got down to the very last slide. And I wasn't looking at the screen when the very last slide came on. It came on. But I remember uh, I'm packing from New York, going up there. There was one slot left on the second reel. And I put in a random slide and I stuck it in there. And now that slide came on the screen. And I'm still not looking at it. 
but I'm looking at the faces of the audience in front of me, and all of a sudden, they stopped talking. And everyone froze. And you literally could have heard a pin drop on the wooden floor. And Peter looked at each other shockingly. Later, we realized we had the same thought. Oh, my God, we just insulted every Jew in the room by something we did. And then we noticed there wasn't a dry eye in the audience. And I looked at the screen, and it was a photograph of their names on the ceiling in the remote part of the cave. Then Peter and I realized what happened. This was the first time that children and grandchildren saw physical evidence that the story they grew up with actually occurred. There's a strong emotion that was displayed. I, you know, we're, we're just about out of time. And I've got to ask, I'm sure they've asked you. You know what the question is. Have they ever asked, are you interested in converting? You, you know, Chris, if you have a bar mitzvah, I'm there. You live in New well, York. I'm not that far away. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, about five years ago, uh, it turned out, uh, I've I received word from Ancestry.com that I'm 1% Jewish. You know, so, I, I actually just found out that I'm 0.2% Ashkenazi. So, you know, you and I, we have that tiny little dot somewhere in Eastern Europe, something happened. But, but when I got that notification, I realized I, I it was obvious. I should have realized that for years because I start feeling guilty not being Jewish. <laughs> and when I would step into a totally empty room within minutes, there would be numerous opinions. So I should have known. <laughs> What a great story. And and Chris, if people want to find out more, where, where should they look? Because this is a story that hasn't, it's not over. It's still an evolving story. Where, where do they start looking? You can look up Chris Nicola. You can look up Priest Grotto. You can look up what else? Well, there's a, I think there's a wealth of information on my website about this story, www.chrisnicola.com. And also um, Magnolia Films, the distributor of uh, No Place on Earth, has a very nice website at www.noplaceonearthfilm.com. And of course, uh, the book and uh, the DVD are available for places like Amazon. Chris, you know, the, the name of this show is Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher. I think Life's Tough, The Sturmers Are Tougher. That's that's what I've come away with. Listen, thank you so much for uh, being on this and, you know, Damn you for making me cry. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com explorers. One more time www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.